1. John chapter 1, the first five uh, verses, and I will give you some introductory notes, and then we will commence to studying the particular uh, subject today. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, the theme of the Gospel of John is, is found in chapter 20, verses 20 through 31. And it is simply teaching that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. His book deals with the signs Christ gave during His ministry that proved His deity. These signs are seen by dependable witnesses that have, as we see in the epistle of John, that have seen, heard, and touched and therefore are trustworthy. And John wants men to believe in Jesus as Lord and receive new life through Him. So he teaches that Jesus is God and God loves you. And so if you looked at the Gospel of John and the Epistle of John and the Revelation of John, the three books that he wrote, the Gospel speaks of union, the Epistle speaks of communion, and Revelation, Revelation speaks of consummation of our relationship. We live in the time that speaks uh, of the epistle, uh, the present moment. In the Gospel of John, he speaks of the necessity of belief in salvation. In the epistle of John, he speaks of how to have assurance of salvation. And as I showed Wednesday night, it discusses fellowship and union with Christ. You may feel different in your fellowship with God, but your union with Christ can never be changed once it's sealed. It can never be changed. And so he talks about sanctification and then in Revelation, glorification. The Gospel of John, which we have here, speaks of past history. In fact, in this first book, it speaks of the history that is before history. Uh, it, it speaks of something we cannot imagine. We can only call it eternity past. In the epistle, 1 John, he talks about our present experience, how we live now. In the revelation, he speaks of the future glorification or the future hope that we shall enjoy. So we see in John that Christ died for us. In the epistle of John's, John's epistle, Christ lives in us. And in the revelation of John, Christ comes for us. And so this is a magnificent thing. And what you'll notice here in this verse beginning, it says, in the beginning was the Word. In John's Gospel, he says, in the beginning, the Word was made flesh. Or in John's Gospel, he talks about the Word was made flesh and we beheld Him full of grace and truth, the only begotten of the Father, he says later on here in this chapter. In his epistle, he talks about the Word as the Word of life. As the Word of life, that is, the Word is made real to us. Jesus is made real to us. And in Revelation, He, is, he conquers. The Word is the conquering Word. He is the one that comes with the Word as a, as a two-edged sword riding in glory. 
to, to separate uh, bone and sinew and everything. He is coming in, in conquering. So you have in this text, in the beginning, whereas in 1 John I showed you the other night, you have from the beginning. That was the beginning at the incarnation with the epistle of John. But this gospel is totally different. This gospel is different. He says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now, remember that because that's what we will focus on. But by way of, again, the theme of this gospel is that Jesus is God and He loves you. In its comparison to the other gospels, the first three gospels are called the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And synoptic means to see together. That's what synoptic means, to see together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all view Christ in a similar way, each with his own emphasis. For example, Matthew is writing to the Jews, so he pictures Christ as the king of the Jews. Mark uh, shows Christ as the servant, and he is writing to the Romans. Luke is writing to the Greeks, so he teaches Jesus, shows Jesus as the Son of Man. But John is different. John is different. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, St. John the Beloved of the Lord, is writing to the world that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is writing to the world. And so while the first three Gospels deal primarily with the events of Christ's life, it is John that goes much deeper into, uh, into the spiritual meaning of these events. The spirit, and so do not think that there is a conflict, because there is none. There is no contradiction. There is no misstatement. It is the way the book is written. The book dives into the spiritual example of Jesus Christ and His ministry. All four Gospels, for example, record the feeding of the 5,000, but only John gives the great sermon on, on the bread of life in John 6. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't do that. And that is an explaining of the miracle that is seen there. And, but he doesn't use the word miracle ever in his Gospel. They all use miracles. Matthew, Mark, and Luke use the term miracle, but John calls them signs. He calls them signs. Instead, for a sign is a miracle that carries a message. And this is John's message, that Jesus Christ is the pre-existent one. He has been who all have been looking after since the dawn of time. I'm going to show that to you in a moment. The key words of this book are life and believe, light and darkness, truth, witness, word, glory, and so forth. Uh, the word come, C-O-M-E, is a big word. The verb, come, eternal and everlasting. And the Christ that is mentioned here in John's Gospel is mentioned 15 different times in regards to different names. Now we know, you may remember, there are seven I am statements that Jesus made. They are all found here in John. John says of Jesus, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the, true, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. 
Those are the seven I am statements of Jesus. But also, John shows Jesus in another eight ways using an example. First, Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Bridegroom. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the prophet, which we know from our New Testament that the spiritual gift that lays upon Jesus is the gift of prophecy. It says that explicitly. And so you have some signs in John's gospel. Some signs in John's gospel. The first three signs in the Gospel of John speak to how salvation comes to the sinner. Salvation comes to the sinner. The sinner doesn't come to salvation. Salvation comes to the sinner. Water is turned into wine, which speaks of salvation is by the word. You have healing of the nobleman's son, which is salvation is by faith. You have the healing of the paralytic where salvation is by grace. But also you have four signs that show the result of salvation in the believer. You have this feeding of the 5,000 where salvation brings satisfaction. Where salvation brings satisfaction. You have the stilling of the storm where salvation brings peace. You have the healing of the blind man which salvation brings light. I'm going to show you something about light in a moment. You have the raising of Lazarus, which salvation brings life. And so we are going to have a marvelous time looking at this gospel. In chapter 7 through 12, you begin to see the conflict, though, begins to become severe between Jesus and the religious people as they try to arrest and stone him and they're They're saying all of these things and in chapter 18 through 19 you have the climax of the book, the gospel where Jesus Christ is arrested and he's crucified. And these are the three crises that take place in this book. When the multitude leaves him after wanting to make him king and I think it is very interesting that starts in John 6 verse 66. John 6 verse 66. To identify Christ wrongly is of the devil. And they wanted to make him, leave him. The multitudes wanted to make him king and he was not, his kingdom was not of this world. In chapter 12, when the people refused to believe on him, and finally in chapter 19, they crucify him. The first crisis, they want to make him king and they leave him. The second crisis, they hail him as king and they reject him. And the third crisis, they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. We'll probably deal with it that way. So let me show you something. Jesus Christ is called the way, the truth, and the life. This is an application to you and I just from this introduction. Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And He is the way, but they will not walk in Him. That's what you see. He is the way, but they would not walk in Him. He is the truth, but they did not believe Him. 
and he is the life. But they killed him. That is the story. But that's not all the story. John paints this wonderful picture, but his focus is to show you he is God. And so look at this word. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things come into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. You see, the Bible says here He is the Word. Why would John use this word, logos, word? That's what the word is, logos or logos. And it is because what John is doing here is to reveal Jesus Christ both to the mind and the heart of the recipients of His gospel wherever they are in the world. Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father in John 14, 9. If you think about it, a word is composed of letters. Is it not? It is composed of letters. The Bible says that Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. The first letter of the Greek alphabet is Alpha. The last letter is Omega. That means Christ is the beginning, He is the middle, and the end. The Bible says in Revelation that Jesus Christ is the Amen. He is the Amen. That is His name of many names, hundreds of names. He is the Amen. The last word of the Bible in Revelation 22:21 is Amen. But what is the first word of the Bible? The very first word of the Bible spoken by the Creator who the Creator is Jesus, is this word. Light be. Light be. So what does Jesus say right here? This text says, All things came into being through Him, and apart Him nothing came into being that has come into being. So this speaks of the fact, and I will prove up in a moment, He is the one, He is the creative agent which makes it all the more amazing that the creative agent died for his creation. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Notice that word light is capitalized in your Bible. But he speaks of it. Jesus is the light. What was the first word that is recorded for humanity to hear that Jesus Christ said? Light. He is the what? The light and the Amen. Not only is He the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letter, listen to me, He is the first word and the last word. He's the first word and the last word. And everything in the middle. And so what do you have here? You have this picture of Jesus Christ the Word that we learn from both Greek philosophy and Hebrew morality that He is the mediator they have all been looking for. Christ is the mediator. And I want you to write it down. Christ is 
the mediator. The, the great confessions of Protestant faith do not title the subject of Christ as the Savior. They call Him the mediator. The mediator, because the Christ part speaks of the salvation. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. The Messiah is the mediator. So it was God in eternity past who had an eternal purpose. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Alright? So what happened? In eternity past, God had an eternal purpose. Three things. To choose and ordain the Lord Jesus. The Bible calls Jesus the elect of God. That term choice is right there. Why did He not choose Himself? Why did He not choose the Holy Spirit? He chose Christ, who the Old Testament and the New Testament calls the elect of God. And it's only place as an individual and in divinity, with its divinity, the elect of God. And so He chose and ordained the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant that was made between God the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a mediator between God and humanity. And that is all proved up in Scripture. But what is this second thing? God chose Him, second thing, God chose Him in eternal, eternity past to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. To be a prophet and priest and a king to be head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and the judge of the world. That's what a king does. A king sets the law and enforces it. A priest is the one that deals with all the things God gives from heaven to man. He speaks to man. And then there is the idea as the prophet, the head and the savior of the church. The one who takes care of these things. And then so from all eternity, number three, God gave to the Son the people to be His offspring. In, his, in, his, in what are known as the, as the eternal degree, to, the eternal decree of God and the predestination for His glory of God came what is known as the covenant of redemption between Jesus and His Father. And so He was to give the people, He gave people to Jesus and eternity past as an, off, as an offspring. And in time, these people, listen, these people would be redeemed, they would be called, they would be justified, they would be sanctified, and they would be glorified. Where is all of that found? In this gospel. But speaking of this covenant of redemption, for just a brief moment, let me show you this in case you are confused. This covenant of redemption that took place in eternity past before Jesus Christ said, light be. Whatever was happening that transcends time, whatever was going on, Jesus Christ the Lord and God the Father made a covenant. It's all in Scripture. You can read it in Psalms, the New Testament, Isaiah. He made a covenant before eternity passed. 
that he would give offspring to Christ. And this is what happened. And by the way, what I'm reading to you is written from the 17th century before modern day eschatology and all of the stuff that you hear about today uh, even was born. The Bible says, God gave to him, the Father gave to Christ, thine they were and thou gavest them me. Therefore they are said to be written in the Lamb's book of life. They which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21, 17, 27. In eternity past is when the Lamb's book of life was written. In eternity past. Because God gave to Jesus His offspring. Now, He would permit that those people would sin by their own free will and thus would conclude in sin by virtue of which they are nature by nature the children of wrath as it says in Ephesians and so that in so that the infinite mercy and grace of God should be bestowed upon them in delivering them from this state and bringing them to salvation it was necessary listen it was necessary that there be a mediator a surety a surety to satisfy the justice of God. Surety means a person who takes responsibility for another person's performance. The Father thus gave the elect to His Son as a surety, or you can use the word chosen. He gave the chosen to His Son as surety, and the Son accepted them and he recorded their names in his book. And he became a surety for them. How? Because he promised to accomplish his Father's will's good pleasure and therefore come to earth and bring them home. He is the bridge. He is the mediator. And so consequently, you have this idea, this great truth that transcends just all of time, the very thing that men have been looking for forever. And it has to do with the word, word. Listen, listen. The roots of this concept, Logos, L-O-G-O-S, Logos, is a philosophical construct that once it's understood, human dignity can be celebrated and can be protected. But it is not celebrated or protected today, especially the lives of the unborn because there is no concept of this logos this word and what it means there is only chaos when there is no submission to logos now don't think this is going to be boring because I'm going to show you something how God has been speaking through history and how he has been speaking through lost men pointing to Christ thus proving what he says in Romans 1:20 you are therefore no excuse because what you have imagined and what you have seen points to me. So pay attention. 
There can only be chaos when there's no understanding of the logos, of darkness. There is a dispiritedness which we are living in today in our country. There's a confusion, there's a blackness, and there's an abyss. And what comes out about it, historically there becomes this progressivism and this fascism and socialism, communism, and democracies all despise this concept of logos. Seeing it properly as which stifles all practical is all well materialistic ambitions. And so John uses this word, word, to begin his teaching, this gospel. So let me tell you where this word is first recorded and who first invented it. His name is Heraclitus. Heraclitus who lived in Ephesus in 500 B.C. The greatest ruins of the church you can see today of the ancient church are in Ephesus. He was the first to identify this concept in Greece long ago, and this is what he said. There is a universal principle that, that animates and rules the world. Now, he's a Greek. He is a Gentile. He has nothing to do with Hebrews or any of that. Prior to him, philosophy had just been born by a man named Thales of Miletus in 624 where he said, he said everything is water, boils down to water, and that is the birth of philosophy. Now what is going on during this time is that you have the end of the writing of the Old Testament taking place about this time. And the Old Testament is going to end. The oracle of God are going to end. And so there's going to be a silence about what God is saying through the Hebrews. But He doesn't stop. He keeps speaking through the Greeks. I'm going to show you. And they didn't even know. They didn't even know. And so the concept of the Logos itself has an ancient noble root and here's how they represented where Thales said all things are boiled down to water, no pun intended, boiled down to water. Heracletos says this logos is fire. Well, what do you need for light at night in 500 B.C.? You need light, you need fire. He calls it fire. And so this is what happens. The Logos, as one of four Greek rivals and so forth goes on, they write in Heracletus, identified the word as reason. A reason that rules the universe. And later on in 129, a Greek physician named Galen, this is before Jesus, well it's actually after Jesus, the great Greek philosopher and physician said in Rome that he did not make the world as an artisan does his work, but it is by wholly penetrating all matters, and he is the demiurge of the universe. Here is a pagan, a lost man, a physician, a philosopher, 129 years after the birth of Jesus, saying this logos that Heraclitus spoke of is something that is transcendent beyond us, and he is not like a painter who paints a, 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 a picture, but he penetrates everything, whether it is earth, wind, fire, or water. It penetrates everything. This is the lost mind. And then there's this guy named Plutarch. I wondered what his parents were thinking when they said, Hey, Plutarch. 
Plutarch was a Greek philosopher from 46 to 119. And he said this. These are his writings. He says this logos, this word, is the go-between God and man. And it was finally that the Christian theologian Tertullian, in 155 to 220 A.D., said that it is the logos that mixes with matter as honey does with the honeycomb. This was all birthed out of Stoicism. Stoicism. The philosophy of Stoicism. Heraclitus was a Stoic. And he adopted, the Stoics adopted the Logos as their God. Small g. As their God as the one who holds together and rules the world. They did not know who he was, but they called it the Logos. And through it and its greatest gift, which is reason that man can contrive and can think, all human beings possess dignity. And to violate, to violate natural law then is an attempt to thwart the Logos and is a grave sin. So it is therefore there is something. You remember I told you months back of the universal moral law of God? Here it is being demonstrated through philosophy. Now the Bible says none seek Him. No, not one. But it doesn't say none seek good. The Stoics were looking for eudaimonia. They were looking for good. They were looking for tranquility. They were looking for happiness. We know as believers through Christ, we have something far greater than that. It's the makarios, the joy, the blessed state of knowing Christ Jesus. Do you know what killed Stoicism? Christianity. The cross, what happened and where do you see this happening? In Acts chapter 17 where Paul is preaching at Mars Hill which is the Oropagus there in Greece but they were now under Roman control and so the Oropagus became what is known as Mars Hill and there was the pantheon of gods and he doesn't sit there and say all of these gods you have are wrong. He says you have a God here whom you have not named. And I tell you, and he told them, it was the Logos. And you know how I know? Because in Acts chapter 17, he quotes a Stoic poet. And do you know what happened? The Epicureans who wanted to do everything they wanted to do, that pleased him under the sun, that the way unto a man seemeth right, those kind of people, they laughed at him and scoffed at the Apostle Paul. But do you know who sat there and believed? They said, we found it. He has explained what we have been looking for that we have heard about all the way back to Heraclitus. That there is something beyond us that is absolute and we have put it on our hearts that even in our pantheon of gods, we don't know what to call it, but now He has shown us. It is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It is the God of the universe. It is God. God was testifying to mankind through the lostness of mankind. Through the lostness. And so let me just show you this to prove it. To prove it to you. There was a man named Cicero. Cicero loved the Stoics. He was not one. Cicero was one of the plotters to kill Julius Caesar. 
And Brutus told Brutus, Brute, along with the others, told Cicero, you talk too much. In fact, you're all hat and uh, nothing else. And uh, so Cicero did not get to go kill Julius Caesar that we all learned about in high school. But we didn't learn that it was the Stoics that killed him. Because the Stoics said the nation, the republic, is to be a republic, not a dictatorship. I mean, you want to go back in history and see what strong men did concerning democracy, these, that's what they did. And so here's what takes place. Cicero, uh, he accepted what Heracletian and the Stoics accept of Logos, recognizing reason as the voice that connects not only man to man, but man to God. Reason connects man to man and man to God. And so here's what happens. He writes, we have this idea, is that what is more divine than reason, I will not say in a human being, but in the entire heaven and earth. And this is what Cicero says. Watch this. This man's a pagan. He's never heard of Judaism. He's never heard of Christianity. He's never heard of anything like that. Okay? He, he in fact, is beheaded... Uh, about the time Jesus is six, okay? It is rightly named wisdom, and therefore nothing is better than reason. And since it is both human being and God, this is Cicero, since this reason, this wisdom, this logos is both human being and God, and he has never met who this logos is, the primary fellowship of human beings with God therefore involves reason. And so what did he do? He said this. He wrote this because Cicero was also a lawyer. Listen to this and see if you would like to live under this type of law. Watch this. This logos penetrating his heart. The universal moral law of God penetrating his heart. He doesn't know it anything about it, but now he is speaking almost Greco lost prophetically of Jesus. Look what he says. Civil law must shape itself in accordance with the natural law of divine reason. Therefore, if the state does not uphold the logos, it is not a state. This is before they knew who Jesus was. And yet God is communicating these pre-conversion pagan prophets about Jesus. And so there's something else that absolutely blew my mind. Virgil. Virgil, the ancient poet... He wrote of the Stoic Logos, and I want you to pay close attention to this. This is absolutely going to make your hair stand up on your arms. He wrote this poem 50 years before the birth of Jesus. It is in his Ecologue, and he is a pre-Christian prophet for sure, written in 42 B.C. Listen to these words. Virgil the poet wrote, Now dawns the last age of Cumaean song. Once more the circling centuries beg in. The virgin reappears in Saturn reigns. 
From heaven descends a novel progeny. Now to this child in whom the iron race throughout the world shall cease and turn to gold. Extend thy aid, Lucenia, chaste and kind, for thy Apollo reigns. This glorious age, Pollio, will dignify thy consulate. Then shall great months their wondrous course commence under thy rule. What traces may yet remain with us of guilt, it shall vanish from the earth, leaving it free forever from alarm. He, listen, he will accept his life as of the gods with whom the heroes mingle. Seen by them, the whole world will he rule. Now set, now set at peace by his great Father's power. These are the words laid on the hearts of men that there is something beyond themselves and there are no excuses. Heraclitus, though Heraclitus was a pantheist, just as the Stoics in later times were pantheists. But I will tell you this, it is true that the conception of God as the imminent ordering principle of all things, the one who gives the state its identity as the Logos. Together with the moral attitudes of acceptance of events is that He is indeed the expression not only of divine law, listen, but divine love. These are their writings, not mine. And so... The pagan Logos entered the Christian thought very deeply. And when St. John, the beloved of the Lord, wrote around 118, uh, 100 A.D., and he wrote his gospel and the revelation, the concept of the Logos, the concept of the Word, was speaking to explain the incarnate second person of the Trinity. But here's something that's more amazing. This concept is older than the Greeks because it goes to the Hebrew mindset of this word. The word logos in Hebrew is M-E-M-R-A, memra. So you have logos appearing in pagan religion, in pagan philosophy. But before 600 B.C. and Thales and all of his stuff and he says this, all this stuff out here is just water and then it becomes fire and then they go on to say, you know, it's wind, fire and water and earth. All of those things. The Hebrews, the Hebrew people, having been conquered by Alexander the Great, perhaps may have been influenced by this Hellenization of thought, but it predates that. It goes back farther than that. And so there it goes back to the Targum. And it goes back to the early writings of rabbinic tradition where they thought of this matter, this word, this memra, that it resembled this idea of a revealer of God. This memra was a revealer of God. This was one who was the wisdom of God. That this memra would be the one who would be the upholder and fulfiller of God's law. Now these are not written in biblical text. These are written in all of their other texts. Hebrews didn't just write the Bible. And so what's happening? 
Their understanding was this, and it's later found 100 B.C. in what is known as the Book of Wisdom. The Book of, so the book of Wisdom of Solomon. It is not a canonical book. It is not a holy book. But it is a book that is in the Catholic Bible. It is a book that is in the Eastern Orthodox Church's Bible. And we call it the Apocrypha as Protestants. But it is not a holy book. And it was written in Egypt about 100 and B.C. before Christ. And so you do not have the advent of Jesus yet. You have 300 years already of silence in the intertestamental period. There's nothing going on. There's no oracle except there seems to be these oracles happening over there in Greece and Rome. God's speaking through those pre-converted prophets, those pre-conversion whatever. And history proves it. And so what's going on here? Here's what they talk about. It's simply this. In this book of wisdom, this book of Solomon, you can buy this book today, it talks about two things regarding this Mimrah. And then I will make the application. It speaks of the relation of God to man, the Mimrah to man, that wisdom is the perfection of knowledge and of the righteous as a gift from God showing itself in action. You know what that, you know how you say that in Greek? Logos. So the Memrah was saying in relation to man, God is going to reveal himself as wisdom and he's going to reveal himself as having come from God and he will be known for what he has done. This is written 100 years ago prior to the birth of Jesus Christ where there is no Verbal, prophetic ministry. It is a time of darkness. And then in relation to God, it says this, the Memrah, which is the Hebrew word for the word, the concept of the word, listen to this, it is wisdom with God from all eternity past. What, and you read your Bible, if you ever take play the game, Whatever it is where you have to know trivial pursuit Bible thing, it'll ask you what is the first thing that was created. And the first thing that was created was wisdom. I, I lost sleep over all this last night. This is so fascinating. So let me show you something. Listen to what this says. The author identifies the word, the memorial, and wisdom with four cardinal virtues. You know what those cardinal virtues are? Prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. You know what the four, the four cardinal virtues of Stoicism are? Prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. There is no way they could have been connected. They were separated by a big body of water called what? the Mediterranean. What's happening? These are the four gospels. These are four virtues. The Apostle Paul goes on and adds three more to them. Faith, hope, and love. These are the cardinal virtues of Scripture. And so watch this. When peaceful silence lay over all, this is from the book of wisdom, which is not canonical, it's, and it's not viewed as heretical, it's historical, but it's not part of the Bible. But you know what? We read other books besides that are not part of the Bible, so there's no reason to discount it. It is part of their history. They did write this, after all. It's worthy. And so when peaceful silence lay over all, and the night had run the half of her swift course, down from the heaven, 100 years before Jesus, 
Down from the heavens, from the royal house, leapt your all-powerful word, capital W, like a pitiless warrior into the heart of a land doomed for destruction, carrying your unambiguous command like a sharp sword. What is Jesus coming as when he returns? Watch this. And it stood and it filled the universe with death. Though standing on earth, it touched the sky. Whose death filled the universe at Calvary? Folks, do you see this? It describes the incarnate word of the gospel that John talks about. Friends, listen. This is the very reason he begins this. You're not familiar with it, but there was no one in that day that was unfamiliar with it. There was no one that day that was unfamiliar with it. He preached the word so basically, so relatively, so effectively that anybody that comes from ancient Egypt, comes from Palestine or the ancient Near East, or Greek or Rome or the empire could understand it because he says, in the beginning was the Word. And they understood it. This wasn't some ethereal thing or philosophical thing. This was something that totally touched them to say, what do you mean the Word? And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And He became the Word of life. And we beheld Him full of grace and truth, the only begotten of the Father. The Gospel is for all men. Because the message was for the whole world. And you may foolishly make the error to say such a study is not necessary. Oh friend, it is for you. Because this is the absolute assurance that we have that there is no one without an excuse and consequently we must share the gospel with everyone. And, it, and to do that, we will have to use words if necessary because it is written on their hearts. Listen to this. Do you know what this, you know what this means to the philosophers today? The philosophers today and the atheists today. I've been watching not only the reading atheists, but I've been listening to philosophers, and so I've decided just, you know, go dance with the devil, which isn't really not, but I've been listening to Louis Farrakhan. Do you all know who he is? There's something interesting about Louis Farrakhan that he has in common with the philosophers and the atheists. He can't say anything bad about Jesus Christ. He quotes Jesus but he elevates Elijah Muhammad over him. But I've watched Farrakhan quite a bit. And you know what he does when he's talking to guys in prison, young Muslims and all this stuff? He tells them about the man Jesus, not, not uh, Muhammad. He tells them about Jesus. And he quotes the parable. He quotes the scripture. How can a man who preaches so much hatred, who is the epitome of a racist, who would shoot all us white people if he had a chance, why can a man do that? Because it's written on his heart. And he denies it. Because men that are lost don't want the light. They want to walk in darkness. 
And if Jesus is the creator, which he is, it is incredible to me that he does not come to be the dark giver. He comes to be the light giver. He's the first word and the last word. And he is the word. He is the very consummation and summum bonum, the ultimate good that the Stoics looked for. And when they found him, when they found Christianity, it was like the woman at the well who was sitting there and Jesus is called the living water. And, and, she, and he tells her, you know, you, you've been with five guys, you're shacked up with a sixth and you're hitting on me. And she goes back running there, back into Samaria. She's religious, but she doesn't have the full picture. She's only got a little bit of the Bible back then. And she screams, I found him, I found him. And they're going, I wonder which guy she's found this time let's go out there and see and here comes all the Samaritans waving and the disciples are sitting there eating their Jimmy John sandwiches and they come looking and there is Jesus Christ sitting there and they're looking at this woman that are bringing these men in white right flowing robes and Jesus says hey put your sandwiches down behold the fields are white as harvest what was it that was in her heart what was it that caused her to realize what she had known of the Word became the Word of life. And Jesus saved a fornicator right there. Because He has not come to shine darkness. He's come to shine the light. And it's why I tell you that the solution to our nation is not legal. It is not political. Men of old have written about this one who is coming. And the heart of a civil country is a believing family. And if you'll raise up a family that loves Christ, all things will flow from there. The Bible, John says the Bible tells you how to believe and how to be saved. He tells you in the epistle, when you are saved, you can be certain of it because you've been put in relationship with Him. You have been put in fellowship in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in chapter 3 and chapter 4, if you should ever doubt that you're saved because your fellowship is not strong, maybe even now you feel like you're not that close to Him but there's something inside of you that's pulling you. It's the Word that pulled Heraclitus. It's the Word that pulled Cicero. It's the Word by which Virgil wrote. It's the Word by which Zeno of Citium based his school of Stoicism on that was pulling him. That thing which pulls you today is Jesus saying what He says over and over in the Gospel of John? Come! Why would I come to Him? Because He came for me. And wisdom, wisdom. Listen, John said, John's, in John's writing, he did not state that the light only enlightens those who are to come temporarily after the incarnate word. Listen, rather, the incarnate word is coming from out of time and it can penetrate 
and impenetrate all of our times. Do you understand that? All of our times, past, present, and future. I've had people tell me things in their life in the course of of my walk in Christ and as my service as a minister that are incredibly dirty, indecent, and ugly. And they have been surprised, for the most part, at my response to those. Because I don't sit there and go, well, that's it, you're done. The reason is, is because if those of you that were at First Baptist when I was here, I preached a message when I came my first Sunday as pastor. I preached a message entitled, Failure is Not Final. And the reason failure is not final, because what you see in the past, the Word can penetrate that too. You can't change it, but you can change the way you see it for what He did and what He's doing now and what He is yet to do. And so grace, once it enters time, it is not limited to the present and the future. Hear me, believers. It is also for your past. God's unmerited favor is for your past. Those failures that have broken you and beaten you down and held you down, let the Word, because it's the Word, that which transcends more than water, wind, and fire, and earth, it transcends everything, including your past. And consequently, What takes place? The Word has become flesh. The Spirit and the flesh. It didn't become half a one and half another. It became a one whole, a completeness of being with two aspects. Because the second person of the Trinity entered the creation itself, fully God and fully man. And so, my dear friends, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. The glory as the only begotten from the Father, who is full of grace and truth. In verse 18 it says, And no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Why did Jesus go back after the resurrection and the ascension? Because He went back to his father and it's recorded in the Old Testament of what took place when he got, when the lamb comes and stands before the ancient of days that is my favorite name that's that's really my favorite word the ancient of days and he gives him the book and the devil sitting there making accusation against all those people in the book And he gives him his book. 
And the title of the book says, Tetelestai. It is finished. And he said, I am the surety for these in this book. And the Lord says, you win. And the rest is history. Blessed are men whose God is the Lord. I have nothing else to say. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word, wow. I thank you for what you have allowed to transpire these exact 55 minutes. And I thank you that there is so much more to be said, but I have nothing left to say. We have heard it. Now, Father, may we go live it. Because Jesus is the Word, every aspect of our life, from eternity past to eternity future, you have said, Lord Jesus, you will love us with an everlasting love. And we thank you that as we see signs that will begin to be printed soon on billboards saying, wise men still seek him. We pray, Father, that those that are seeking him will find him. And that, Father, we will take such great news, take such great hope out of what we have heard from pagans and lost people who did not even know and perished not knowing. We thank you that we can learn today that the immutable one, the unchangeable one, has been given to us that we may bring many sons and daughters to glory. May it be our great desire to take as many people with us to heaven through the ministry of Christ in us and through us for His glory. Bless us as we go. Our hearts are full. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Have a magnificent Sunday.